Welcome to Going Out Your Door, the podcast to get you out your door and on the road. My name is Marjorie Frymouth. How are you doing today? I am annoyed because it is once again winter in Colorado. You'll be listening to this several weeks after I record it, but now it is February and we had the briefest glimpse of spring yesterday. We've actually had a few warm days in the past few weeks, but yesterday it was warm, it was sunny. I went for a hike and I brought a sweatshirt with me, but I ended up taking it off and was just in a tank top and it was totally comfortable in the sun. I was hot, I was warm. And once again today, it is cold and there is predicted snow for the next three days and we are back to winter, which I can't complain about because it's Colorado in winter and I know that being able to wear a tank top is totally unexpected and random, but it's so hard once you have that glimpse, that hope of spring to go backwards and be cold again. So I hope wherever you are, you are warm, or if you like the cold and the snow, you are enjoying it wherever you are. But today, we are talking about things I wish I'd known before I moved abroad, or things that I learned when I moved abroad, or things that you should know before you travel, just sort of a general hodgepodge collection of that idea. We did one of these episodes before, that was part one. I'm going to keep sprinkling them out throughout the future because there's so many things that fall under this category. So I'll link to it in the show notes, but you may remember we talked about how to pack your suitcase and pack less than you think that you should bring and the intimidation of grocery stores and what foreign healthcare is like and how to advocate for yourself and transferring money overseas and all kinds of feelings and emotions of living abroad and things like that. So here are the next 10 on that list. Number one, and in no particular order, I should say. Number one, visas are serious do not mess with them. This is something, luckily I didn't learn it the hard way, but I did learn it a little bit late in my travels. The first visa I had was when I studied abroad in Vienna. I had a student visa that was good for, I think it was like five months. You'd think six months, but I think it was only for the duration that I was supposed to be there, which was five months. And I enjoyed my time there so much that I decided not to leave when my program finished. I found extended housing. I changed my plane tickets. I decided to stay for like another month. And I didn't really realize what a visa was at that point or the implications of it. I thought it was only necessary while you were in the country. I didn't even think about them checking it when you leave. And so my rationale was like, hey, I've been here for five months already. In that time, no one has asked to see it. Like a police officer has never stopped me on the street and asked to see my visa. So clearly I can get away without having one. It didn't even occur to me that when I had to show my passport to leave the country, they would see it and they would see that I had overstayed and that could be a problem. Like it didn't even cross my mind. So I intentionally overstayed a visa for like three or four weeks. Luckily, it was not a problem. No one at passport control ever questioned it. I completely got away with it. And looking back on it, it scares me out of my mind because I can't imagine doing something like that today because I know the consequences of it. So it totally depends on the country that you are overstaying in. Different countries have different regulations. It also depends on your nationality, what country issued your passport, where you're coming from, because unfortunately, different countries are going to look more or less fondly on people of different nationalities, and that sucks. Um, It also depends on the mood of the 
officer or the you know the passport control agent or police officer whomever you're dealing with their own mood as well as their own stereotypes or ingrained racism or what they think of you or anything like that whether they're going to let you get away with this or how much of a fine they're going to impose of course there are like legal specific punishments for this as well but they can choose whether to enforce them or not generally so you may be hit with a fine you may be banned from the country for a year three years five years ten years so it could be a really hefty fine if you're someone who loves to travel and want to go back to that place or you know there there could be a monetary fine that you have to pay so it could be pretty serious my advice do not risk it If you're just a traveler living in another country, traveling in another country, there's generally a way to get around it, whether it's by doing a visa run, popping out of the country and back in. I know in places like Taiwan, they will usually just let you extend by a few days if you can show them your plane ticket and say like, hey, I screwed up, which I've done once. Um, I accidentally booked my plane ticket for like two days after my visa expired and I went to immigration and just explained it to them and they said, no problem. Um, we're giving you like a, a paper temporary extension, not a big deal. That is also because Westerners are fairly well received in Taiwan. So if I had been someone from like Vietnam or the Philippines, that may not have been so easy. And again, that totally sucks. Which brings me, I'm actually going to rearrange these a little bit because I said they're in no particular order. I'm going to skip ahead to the next one and say that racism exists everywhere but it's also different everywhere. I mean, it's it's different and it's not. It's not because racism is racism, but it is in that it does manifest differently in different cultures and the groups that it is aimed at and things like that. And I also want to acknowledge that I sit here as a middle-class, privileged white person who has experienced even more privilege when I'm living in other countries, and I am fully aware of that. And I have definitely heard white peers or you know colleagues or other people that I encounter especially living in Taiwan might talk about like having experienced racism in Taiwan or other East Asian countries and yeah of course you can have the odd one-off experience where someone will like make assumptions about you or just doesn't want to deal with you or is rude or something like that but that is unequivocally not racism it's not structural or systemic or societal or anything like that so This connects to my point about overstaying visas because generally Westerners in East Asia are a very privileged class. Like again, I'm I'm speaking specifically of Taiwan, but I think this is true in like South Korea or Japan or places like that as well. It is very easy for Americans to get visas in Taiwan. Like, yes, of course, there's paperwork, you have to pay fees and everything, but the whole process is extremely easy. And like I said, I've also screwed up a few times and forgot certain documents or forms that I had to bring. And they're incredibly accommodating. They're like, it's fine. Just, you know, bring it back later or fax it to this address or whatever. It's a pretty easy process. And that is definitely not true for people of other nationalities coming to Taiwan or these countries. So yeah, you know, for what it's worth, Americans are fairly well received in Taiwan. And I should say also white Americans, because I'm speaking as a white person. And having spoken with black friends or people of color in Taiwan, the racism that they encounter is, it's still there, but it's different as well as America. Um, Again, speaking of something I have no personal experience with, but from what I've heard, what I've seen, 
it's less structurally built into the system because simply because there's not a large <laughs> proportion of black people in Taiwan, they don't have it systemically the way that America does. But because the population is smaller, you know, simply the number of black people in Taiwan is smaller than it is in America, there is much more sort of staring and finger pointing and asking to or not not asking to touch just touching hair and skin and things like that, which I know obviously still happens in America as well, but it's to a much higher degree in countries where visual differences are not as common. I hope I put that well. I really, I struggle so hard to talk about these things because I don't want to say the wrong thing, even though I absolutely, even though I totally could and that's okay because we're all learning and all of that. But uh, this is something that is important to talk about, especially for people traveling around the world and wanting to know what sort of reception they might encounter or just the way that things are in different countries. I think it's important to talk about. So Again, I've been focusing a lot on Taiwan and Asia for this, but I, you know, I saw things when I was living in Europe as well and things that were said about groups of people that were very surprising to me because I didn't expect that level of open discrimination. Um, and unfortunately, it exists everywhere. And hopefully through sharing stories and traveling and learning more about each other's cultures, we can work to dismantle it. All right. <laughs> That was the hardest one for me to talk about, which probably means that I needed to talk about it. But again, wanting to acknowledge that I'm not necessarily the person to speak for any of these groups of people. All right, next one, a little less complicated here. There will be good days and bad days when you are living in another country. And of course, this is the case anywhere, anytime in life. Even if you are still in your hometown, you will have good days and bad days, of course. But when you've just uprooted your life and yourself to the other side of the world, the whole feeling of like, WTF am I doing here is on a whole other level. <laughs> um, that feeling of like, I'm trying hard not to swear here. Um, what am I doing in this place? Uh, you know, just what have I done? What am I going to do tomorrow? I, I should just fly home immediately. But like, that's not feasible either. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. And so my suggestion for that is just take the next best step, which is a quote that I love. The next best step. If you need an apartment, cool. Open your computer. Go to the sites that you know for renting apartments. Um, if it's dinner time, go feed yourself. Like, just take the next best step. And before you know it, I know this is so cliche. It might not be all sunshine and roses, although it could be. But you will feel more settled if you just keep taking those next steps, those next best steps. Eventually, you will feel a little bit more settled and maybe like you have more direction and then you can start really embracing the whole living in another country thing because it's fantastic. And then on the flip side, like I said, there's good days and bad days. Often you will feel like the luckiest person in the world when you are able to step back and take a look at where you are and what you are doing. You're just, you're going to feel like so lucky and <laughs> this is an incredible life that you're living and it's wonderful. So you will vacillate between those extremes and everything in between, and it is okay. I've definitely had that experience. The last time that I moved to Taiwan, which geez, now is like four years ago, but I sort of ended up there because I didn't know what else to do. I'd been au pairing in Spain. I didn't want to do that anymore, didn't know where else to go. So I flew to Taiwan thinking it would probably be just for like a few weeks or a month or a few months. And I just remember... 
a few days in staying at a friend's apartment. I didn't have a place. I was just totally lost and felt like things were falling apart. And yet then I ended ended up staying for three years and having some of the best experiences of my life and meeting wonderful people and it all worked out. So ride it out. There will be good days and there will be bad days. Next up, I'm not numbering these because I've totally lost track of my numbers, but the next one, also on the topic of good days and bad days, making friends is hard and dating is hard. Again, this is something that is true no matter where you are. Again, could be true in your hometown, but it is heightened when you are in another country. The easiest ways to meet people, I think, like in adulthood are through roommates or classmates or colleagues, whether it's those people specifically or like friends of friends, people they know. But I've also been in situations where you don't have any of those or just none of those are clicking and it's like, cool, <laughs> I don't know anyone, um, how how do I, other than like stopping someone on the street, how do I meet people? And it's hard and I, the only thing, I've talked about this before, this feels like such a cop-out answer, but this worked so well for me in Taiwan, was Facebook. Like the local Facebook groups for common interests like food or hiking or whatever, or just general groups. Like in Taiwan, we had a group for women in Taipei and it was a huge resource for just everything in life, but also meeting up with people and going out to eat or going to parties or whatever. Uh, That's how I met a lot of the people that I knew there in those last three years. So It can feel so insurmountable when you're sitting in that moment of thinking like, I don't have any friends, I don't know anyone, or like, I want to date, I want to meet someone, and you just don't know how to do it. It's incredibly frustrating, but there are those resources, and I'm happy to talk more about that in a future episode. Next up, again, we're flying all across the board here, money, (laughs) the feeling or idea or conception of a foreign currency can totally fluctuate. I would say most often to me in Taiwan, it felt like monopoly money. Um, I never felt like I was spending as much as I was when it was in cash, even though I know the exchange rate off the top of my head, like it's very easy for me to convert, but I would, it's so much easier to spend a thousand Taiwan dollars than it is to spend like 30, 35 US dollars, which is about the exchange rate. There are some times where it flips the other way, where it's like $35 is nothing compared to a thousand Taiwan dollars, but usually Taiwan money feels like monopoly money. I would say, I haven't been in Europe for a while, but probably the euro feels the other way around, like the euro feels more valuable than American dollars. So you really, really have to think about the the actual hard numbers sometimes and less about like the feeling of how much you're spending because it can be a real problem. Okay, moving on, our next one. This is another one that's hard for me to talk about, maybe just because I have trouble with my privilege, but uh, being a native English speaker is so lucky, and it's totally undeserved. It's a total lottery of birth, but if you are a native English speaker, one, you have access to a huge range of jobs, not least of all teaching English around the world. And I will also say that so many people who speak English as a second language actually speak it so much more accurately, or not even accurately, that's not the point. I don't want to be like a grammar snob, but even though I love grammar, <laughs> but 
they speak it with so much more understanding of the language because at least in America, we are not taught our own language. It's like we learn it by osmosis, but we know absolutely nothing about it. So I learned so much more about English through my ESL teacher training and also through learning other languages than I ever did in school. So I'm just... So just putting it out there that people who speak English as their second language are fully, if not more, qualified to teach English than native English speakers. But so many countries and and schools around the world just prioritize that native speaker status. You know, they have to be able to say that their teachers are native speakers. So to just have that automatically without having done anything to earn it or work for it is just frankly a huge privilege. I wish there was <laughs> I wish there was a better word for that, but that's the only one I can think of. And also already having mastery or competency <laughs> of the lingua franca around the world. You know, if if you go to another country, of course there's no guarantee they will speak English. You should never assume that they do. But if they are speaking a foreign language, it is likely, it would not be surprising if it was English. So That's just something to recognize whether you are still living in your native country, whether it's America or Britain or Canada or Australia or any of the countries around the world where English is a primary language. There is so much that can be done with that that we should really, really be grateful for and acknowledge and use, absolutely use it, take advantage of it, but also acknowledge that it is just an accident of fate, an accident of luck, and all of that. Number whatever. (laughs) Moving on. This is another one. Wow, I I picked lots of topics about like privilege and status and stuff today that are hard for me to talk about. And, And this is another one of those. It's like unfortunate. I don't want to say it. I don't want to acknowledge it. But in my experience, it's true that as a foreigner living in another country, you will get an ego boost out of people's reactions to to you, to your life, to your status as a foreigner or what you're doing living in another country. So that is true. And it's very, very hard for me to respond or react to those situations because it's another situation of like, well, I guess in this case I did, I did work to do it. I set up the situation to go to another country, but I don't think simply being who I am or my nationality is anything deserving of admiration or the oh wow kind of reactions that I sometimes get. So this is a, the reason I talk about this is one, to acknowledge that it's a thing. I wish I'd known it before I moved abroad, but also don't let it go to your head if you experience it. In many countries, not all, I mean, some people will have very bad reactions to you especially depending on where you're from and their associations with your home country. But a lot of times, especially as a Westerner in other parts of the world, people are going to be like super stoked to meet you and really excited. And that's wonderful. It's always nice to have positive reactions to you. But it is very weird when their reaction is just to the fact that like you're from another country. And then on the flip side, when you go home, sometimes people will be similarly odd when they find out that you were living in another place or traveling extensively long term. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is because I wanted to talk about the fact that it's not special. It is something that everyone can do. I think it's accessible for everyone. Of course, people have different hurdles and barriers and all of that, but It is totally doable for everyone, and that is something that I firmly believe. So um, 
those reactions are something that you may encounter. And again, you you could totally encounter negative reactions to you. I know as an American, I I was never personally like verbally attacked or anything, but I was definitely met with some skepticism, trepidation, eye rolling when uh, certain presidents were in office. And by that, I mean number 45. (laughs) When the previous, his predecessor was in office, actually, we got much better receptions around the world, uh, which is just something to note may not may not surprise a lot of us may surprise some of us um yeah when obama was in office people would get really really excited to find out that you were american and then the next guy they were not so excited um but yeah so of course reactions to you can vary wildly across the board depending on a number of factors um speaking as an american in asia and europe from my perspective Okay, veering off course. Next one, bring your medical records. This is definitely something I should have known before I went abroad because you never know when you might need them. Luckily, I've only had one situation where I did need them and didn't have them. In Taiwan, you have to prove that you've had the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella. Uh, It's just one of their things. They want all of their population to be vaccinated against that. So foreigners have to prove that they've had it or they have to get the vaccine again. I did have it as a child. I had the vaccine, but I didn't have my immunization records with me. I've just never traveled with that. It, It didn't occur to me, honestly, although it's a very good idea. And so the first time that I got my visa for Taiwan, I actually had to get the vaccine again because I couldn't prove that I'd already had it. Luckily, I know that vaccines are very good and do not cause harm, and I've now had the MMR vaccine twice and no ill effects. But luckily, the second time around, when I moved back to Taiwan for the second time, I was prepared. I brought all of that, and I didn't have to get it again, which was good. So travel with any relevant medical records. And our second to last one, this is another thing to be prepared for. This is also just true anytime you move in general, but again, especially if you are moving to another country, there are big upfront costs. In my case, I usually feel like I'm just bleeding money for like the first month or two, and then I my paychecks start kicking in and I get my feet under me and I actually start saving a lot of money. But there are upfront costs to doing this. There's the plane ticket, housing when you first arrive, whether that's temporary hostel, hotel situation, uh, deposit on a new apartment, furnishing that apartment. Even if it's furnished, you you know, you're going to probably want your own like sheets and things like that. So you are going to be paying some money also for visa fees. Unfortunately, visas usually cost several hundred dollars. And there are ways to mitigate some of this. You know, I'm a huge proponent of budget travel and just budget in life in general. So this is something we're going to continue to touch on. But to some extent, it is unavoidable that you will be spending more money at the onset of your move to another country. And our last one, speaking of travel, finding housing can be a challenge. Um, Obviously, I've always been successful. I've always found a place to live every time I've moved. But every time it sort of feels like I got a lucky break. It was like through friends in several cases in Ireland. Ireland was actually going through a housing crisis when I moved there. I did not know that when I decided to move to Dublin. And I was able to find apartments through my college alumni network. I like posted on the Facebook page and was like, help, does anyone anyone have any contacts in Dublin? I need to find an apartment. And someone did. 
kid. Her niece was living in Dublin and they were looking for a subletter. So that totally worked out for me. So exploit all of your contacts if you're trying to find housing in a random place. Ask local people or friends where housing is posted. It might be through Facebook groups. There might be specific housing websites. Really just try to dig deep into every avenue you possibly can and knock on wood, something will work out. In my case, it always has. But it can be a challenge and it can be really, really daunting when you're sitting there like in your hostel, like second week in your hostel and you're trying to find a permanent place to live and you're just like, ah. But we can also talk more about that in the future of like specific ways to go about finding apartments, reasonably priced apartments, all of that stuff. And also rent prices can vary dramatically all over the world. Just for context, when I was living in Dublin, which was six years ago, people were paying like 800 euros, so like $900 for a single room in an apartment. In Taiwan, on the flip side, I paid less than $400 USD for what could generously be described as a studio apartment was like one bedroom with a mini fridge and a bathroom. But I was totally happy with it. It suited me fine. But yeah, less than $400 for that. And you could also totally find a solo room for like $200 if you're not picky and you don't mind commuting from further out of the city. I wanted to live like right in the heart of the city, so I paid a little bit more. But yeah, $200, $300, $400 in Taiwan is, is totally reasonable, very reasonable. All right, we have gone all over the map, pun not intended at first, then I realized it was a pun and I did intend it. So I hope that's given you some more insight into what you might expect if you move to another country, things that you might be prepared for that I was not prepared for, some emotional things, social things, practical things all kinds of topics today. If there's anything that you would like me to dig into more deeply, I would love to hear about that. If you have your own experiences to share about any of this, again, I'm, I really want to highlight experiences and perspectives that are not my own on this podcast. So if you have firsthand experience with any of this and would like to share your story, please let me know. You can send me anything to goingoutyourdoortravel at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram and Facebook at goingoutyourdoor and on Twitter at going out your. I will talk to you next time on Going Out Your Door. 